0: So let's just start at the beginning, what's your essay about?
1: Our book chapter uh, sets forth um, Ayn Rand's views on the nature of government and her defense and justification for capitalism and then it it, uh, burrows down into some of the specific details about her defense of property and intellectual property and the purpose was to uh contextualize her views kind of in the in the uh from the perspective of the Western canon, to compare and contrast her, for instance, with the natural rights philosophers, which are which is uh she's often associated with, um, and also to kind of compare and contrast her with some modern uh political movements that she's often associated with as well, such as libertarianism. Um well I'm gonna start by um
0: doing just that, Uh, you distinguish her from social contract theorists. And when people talk about how we should think about the purpose of government, it's, I think, very often, particularly since Ross, thought about in social contract terms. But you argue that that's not how she thought about the issue.
1: That's exactly correct. Um, Or at least she didn't think of uh, of that issue in the way that it's Usually, uh, conceptualized and, and defended in, in political theory today. And social contract theory of course goes, uh, uh, much further back than Rawls, um, you know, and even Rousseau, who it's often associated with. I mean, it's, it, it, it really, the, the idea, although not the explicit term social contract, you know, really actually begins with the natural rights philosophers in the 17th century who, who conceptualized government as an, as, as an agent of the people to whom in, um, they expressly said, you know, to whom you delegate your rights to um, in exchange for the government to, uh, to protect those rights. Uh, for Locke, in particular, it was it was very explicitly in terms of protection of your life, liberty, and property, um, and so and and from this developed this, this foundational idea that the founding fathers even picked up on that you know that there's this it, that the basis of society is the social contract idea that people. Choose to delegate their right to the government in exchange for the protection of those rights, and the government thus um, <clears throat> is the agent of the people. The problem with this idea is is this very odd notion of kind of delegating or transferring your rights to other people through some type of express act um, act of consent, either, uh, or even implied consent. Um, you know, a lot of people say, "Well, there never was consent," and 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 sometimes social contract theorists then say, "Well, it's implied because you choose to stay in society, and thus." Um, your consent is ratified by your action, so to speak. Um, But Rand saw consent very differently. Um, And she's often conflated with consent theorists because she did talk about the government being an agent of the people. She even used at one point in the Nature of Government essay this phrase, you delegate your rights to the government. Um, But she did not view consent as a literal act of consenting to the government. Um, For her perspective, consent was not an action or a choice of, I am agreeing to this particular institution. Instead, to RAN, consent was a moral act. And the moral act was consenting to the respect for individual rights. And recognition of the respect of individual rights is that this requires an institution like a government to secure those rights, both your own and other people's, so that we can ultimately have a flourishing and successful society.
0: We've talked about uh, Rand's view of rights on the podcast before, but if you could just say briefly how what she thinks is the role of government with re- and its relationship to her view of rights, um, to set some context.
1: So for so for so for Rand, a right is a. <clears throat> A principle that defines and sanctions the freedom of action in a social context. That's her definition of of an individual right, and it's a very important definition um, for Rand. As we point out in our chapter, definitions are not st- stipulative, nor they are merely conventional. They they are essential to the objective identification of facts in the world. And the facts in the world that you that uh, that that derives to the need for the concept of rights in this instance is that. Um, individuals um, need to be left free to, in order to think and to act upon their thoughts in order to produce the goods necessary for themselves to live and to have ultimately flourishing lives. And for Rand, therefore, rights are kind of the foundational moral uh, standard by which you assess whether a society is actually a moral society or not. And In fact, she famously said individual rights are the means of subordinating society to moral law." because it's the concept of life as a moral concept by which you can then assess that the government is doing its job and that individuals are being left free to live rational, productive, happy lives. Um, and, uh, And in this respect, this is why she also very much admired um, the natural rights philosophers and, and the founding fathers, and particularly the United States of America, because the United States of America was in a tremendous historical achievement because it was the very first country that was expressly founded upon the principle of individual rights as enunciated in the Declaration of Independence. Despite even some, you know, some minor errors in that document, I mean, what a tremendous uh, human accomplishment, the statement that all governments institute among men for the protection of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
0: So... I want to talk mostly about her view of property rights, but there's one issue that you touched on that I think um, I certainly hear a lot when I speak to younger people interested in free market ideas. So Rand thinks that because we want to protect individual rights, a government is necessary, and yet anarchism has become very popular. So what is her view of why you need a government and why this idea of no government or competing governments or competing protection agencies is off the table for her?
1: Right, that that's an excellent question. Um, and because you're exactly correct, you know, this, this idea of anarchism has really kind of taken over um, and has come to really define uh many uh many libertarian scholars and many people um, on what is defined as the political right today. Um, and um, and she she uh deeply and, and, and vehemently uh, rejected the idea of an- anarchism um, and was an ardent defender of the objective necessity and validity of having a government. Um, a government which she defined as an institution that enforced um, social rules within a specific geographic context. Now, we normally think of governments in the context, for instance, of punishing criminals and 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 preventing people from deliberately infringing our rights, the murderers, the thieves, the type of people who typically exemplified the examples we talked about. When we talked about the need for government, and that is certainly the case. You certainly need an institution like a government that wields a monopoly on the use of force within a particular geographic area to address effectively um, those types of individuals. But more importantly, there's a there's a justification for government that's often forgotten or or not paid attention to um, by libertarians and by um, uh, people who would normally be our allies politically, um, and that is government is a necessity not just for punishing um, immoral people and bad people who would violate our rights, it's a necessity for good people. Um, So Rand rejected the cynical view of of Thomas Hobbes and even sometimes of the founders who thought, you know, it's because people have, you know, irrational impulses or there are bad people. This is why we need government. You know, James Madison famously said in the Federalist Papers, if all men were angels, government would not be necessary. And Rand did not agree with that. She said, even if all men were angels, she didn't literally say this, men would still need government we would still need government to, to define the basic social rules by which we would be interacting with um, in society. And that is because even if we were fully rational, uh, every person in society, um, we are not infallible. And there are legitimate, honest mistakes between fully rational, good people. And how will those mistakes be adjudicated? You know, you can have entirely legitimate good business persons enter into a contract and end up in a disagreement over the terms of those contracts, each of them legitimately thinking they're correct. And you need a government that has objective set forth rules, everyone knows before, uh, beforehand, you know, what's required for evidence, what are the standards, to then adjudicate those types of disputes between good people such that they can then resolve those disputes peacefully – and move on to continue with engaging in productive interactions and and living successful lives. And you know, we, we experience this every day in our lives. We experience disputes between friends. We experience, you know, the disputes between neighbors where they each are accusing each other of trespassing on their property. And these people, you know, your friend is not a vicious, immoral person. The neighbors are not vicious, immoral people. These are good people. These disputes are just naturally part of what happens when people are not infallible and when people even can be fully rational, and you need to have beforehand a government, a neutral arbitrator to set forth objectively, what are the standards by which we're going to assess these disputes, and how are we going to resolve them in order for them to be resolved peacefully. And that is the baseline for having peaceful, cooperative um, interactions in society, um, that people know that, that, that there is an arbiter for those types of disputes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, we both know that, of course, uh, the anarchists, they'll they'll have answers to that uh, and all sorts of objections. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole now. I do want to encourage, I think, mm-hmm. I'd like to see objectivists um, write on this more, because I do think that there are some complex arguments that particularly are confusing to younger people. So anybody right. out there who has some free time... <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I, I entirely agree. I mean there so I, I wanted to kinda hit on the, the the primary point because then right, because then for instance some libertarian economists say yes, but you know but the whole point is that that people they interact they interact voluntarily through contracts, so they should be able to do the same thing with respect to governments. They should be able to choose between competing governments, and the, you know, and they should go with the one that could best and most efficiently resolve the disputes that they might have and enforce their contracts. And Rand addressed each of those kind of response arguments, and we detail those responses in our chapter. Um, you know, her uh, the, the the problem with that argument is a derivative argument is is that it conflates. Um, what she called you know the, the the power of the dollar with the power of the gun, it conflates what is inherently a coercive institution that wields force as a retaliatory measure which is go- which is government with what inherently is a cooperative explanatory rational uh, reason based institution which can 't compel you to do anything against your will can only convince you through your use of your mind a, a business um, and so you know there there are certainly derivative issues and further arguments, but I just kind of wanted to lay that kind of baseline that it's government that makes possible, from Rand's perspective, peaceful, ongoing, cooperative, flourishing interactions in society. It's not just about stopping bad people. It is about actually creating the base conditions for even having good people being able to do what they want to do and interact with each other in the world.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about Ayn Rand's view of property rights, which are really central to how she thinks about rights and the role of government. But I I want to back into it with a perspective that's very widespread, particularly in, or not particularly, uh, on the left today. Um, And there's a view that, well, property rights are a legal convention, and since the government could have set up and defined rights in various ways, we can't claim to have a right to property prior to government that it has to recognize and protect. And so if it sets up, you know, a situation uh, that involves, you know, a large welfare state or um, mm-hmm. things like that, there's there's no moral complaint that you can make. The, the only complaint is, is the government obeying the rules as it's been set up? And I wonder if you can contrast that sort of view with how Ayn Rand thinks about it, because I think it's, she takes a radically different approach to thinking about property rights.
1: Oh, exactly, exactly. Um, very, ra- completely, radically different approach, both kind of methodologically and substantively. Um, and this is the ways in which Rand shared some common ideas and ideals with the natural rights philosophers and um, and the founding fathers who were informed by um, by natural rights and creating the United States of America. Is that in, in, instead of kind of starting from this kind of consent-based assumption about, well, we form society and government is not doing things according to consent of the majority, you know, she rejected that type of kind of generalized intuition-based approach. She said, you know, you always have to check your premises. It's her famous phrase. You have to ask kind of get down to the foundational question, which is why do we have rights? What are rights? What What is their origin? And What's the function, for instance, of the right to property? Um, And so, she viewed um, property in particular as a a fundamental right. That she, you know, she viewed it very much as as a logical byproduct of, in fact, of your right to your life. And so, she viewed it as a, as a, um, as a, as a necessary. As I said, it's a necessary byproduct of what it means to live your life. So it's not something that arises simply because we have a government who's protecting us and is defining something that it's calling uh, property. In fact, it's because of our very nature as rational animals that we actually have to create property and then when we interact with people in society, we have to be left free to create that property and then to be able to use it to sustain our lives by disposing of it in consensual interactions with other people through things like contract. And so she follows a similar methodology as the naturalized philosophers in the the 17th and 18th centuries, where she actually says, So you actually have the right to life. And what does it mean for humans to have a right to life? And it means that you have to be left free to take the actions necessary to sustain your life. Life, for Rand, is a process of. Of, of of acquiring and using values that, and acquiring, it means creating values because we don't find for ourselves ready-made the products necessary to sustain us. We don't go into the woods and find clothes and homes and cars and air conditioners, um, or computers or telephones for that matter. So, um, humans actually have to think about what we need to do in order to sustain ourselves. So we don't, so it's not even a, even a process of identifying like what food is important for us, you know, what, and what, and what things to avoid, like the poisonous berries. You also have to acquire... The methods, you have to think about the methods of farming and the methods of creating tools to farm, creating plows and how to use plows properly. And all of that is rational thought combined with the action that follows from that rational thought and guided by the rational thought in creating those, those the values necess- necessary to sustain yourself. The food and, and, and shelter and clothing, the basic necessaries. And then of course the, the more important things that are part of living a full flourishing and rational life, like art and things of that sort. And so, so, to have the freedom to create those things means you also have to have liberty. You have to have the right to liberty. So a right to life by necessity means the right to liberty. And then acting upon the right to life of liberty, you're actually creating these new values. You're creating a farm, you're going out and finding fallow land and you're inventing a plow and you're plowing the soil and you're building your home. So you're, you're actually creating values in the world that didn't exist before. In other words, property. And, and the freedom to create those values Acting upon your right to life and liberty is, for land, the right to property. It's why she thus defined the right to property as the right to acquire, use, and dispose of material values. So she has this very um, detailed philosophical justification for property as how it flows out of the very requirements of human nature as a rational animal. And thus, when you enter into society, and are secured the freedom of fear of action to continue to create those values. Um, it's a proper and just government that then recognizes and secures those rights to you. It doesn't create those rights.
0: I want to read a quote from your paper. That The first time I read it, I think my jaw fell to the floor because it was so surprising and yet such a fertile thought. So. Uh, Quote, significantly, Rand is not saying that the right to property is a moral claim to an object. As an individual right, the right to property secures only freedom of action in a social context, unquote. What are you getting at in that section of your chapter?
1: Oh, it's it's a very important point that is, um, and it's a point of confusion between Rand and, for instance, the natural rights philosophers, and it's one of the points where she diverges from them. um, Given Her many more substantive and fundamental differences in some of her uh, inner epistemology and metaphysics, and that for her, rights are not inherent in humans. So she rejected in intrinsicism in and epistemology. You know this idea that concepts and principles and things existed in nature. Um, and so rights were not intrinsic either in humans directly as parts of us, nor were they intrinsic in objects in the world. What a right is, as, as I stated earlier, as she defined it, is a moral principle defining and sanctioning man's freedom of action in the social context. So what a right was is a moral principle that we induced from the recognition of the facts of human nature that we have, that humans have to be left free to think and to be able to produce the values necessary to sustain our lives and ultimately live flourishing lives. Um, <clears throat> and this is why she says rights both define and sanction. So they so they define that, uh, descriptively the scope of that freedom and they validate it. They say it's legitimate because we should have that freedom because if we don't, we cannot survive, we cannot live, we cannot have flourishing lives. And in fact, the 20th century is a testament to... Uh, of just uh, of government after government, the Soviet Union, the Khmer Rouge, the Nazi, Nazi Germany, even you know the, the even the Taliban and um, and Iran's dictators now, um, of governments that, that exemplified what it means for governments not to respect uh, what an individual right is. So it's uh, it's a moral principle that recognizes a sphere of action. That you can, that you have the liberty to take that action without being coerced or um, or compelled through coercion by other people in society, so that you can actually live a flourishing life. So, a right to property is not "I have a right in a thing." It's "I have the liberty to use something that I've created, um, and and to use it for the benefit of my life." And in a more advanced, complex society like we have today, that means engaging in contracts and other commercial exchanges. Um, but at root, even in advanced commercial societies like we have today, they ultimately go back to an initial act of production that was an act taken in a social context that was, that was defined and secured to that person or should have been as an individual right.
0: I wonder um, if you could contrast then her view of property rights from, I think, particularly among uh, free market leaning economists, that the source of property rights is really about solving the problem of scarcity, that is, people have unlimited wants and yet we have limited things and so we need property, uh, to define property rights in order to deal with that conflict.
1: Mm -hmm. Right, right, and that's a very common argument that one hears. Especially from economists um, who are who are advocates for the free market, that property is the solution to conflicts about scarce goods, Um, and Rand rejected the concept of scarcity, um, um, both kind of as a a, as a foundational concept for assessing um, how we should frame and define what rights are. But she rejected the concept more fundamentally of scarcity as just an invalid concept. I mean, and for two reasons, and I think that this is very uh, significant. The first is that um, scarcity uh, it re- is a concept that really reflects what Rand called the primacy of consciousness, because it, it, scarcity starts in the premise we have unlimited wants. And there's only so many things in the world that can satisfy those wants. And so, and so it has this kind of very kind of, so it starts from the premise of what our desires are, not from what are the facts of the world. And what are actually what is actually the facts of human nature? I mean, so it takes as a given our desires, without actually assessing well are those desires rational or irrational, and and why would we have these desires? Those are the more kind of fundamental questions in epistemology and metaphysics and in human na- and about human nature more generally. That Rand says you have to first assess, and scarcity we it, it just it just. Uh, Assumes as a baseline. No, no, we'll just whatever we have in our head is it, it, all of these unlimited wants. We all want ten thousand Ferraris, and we all want uh, you know um, you know ten thousand you know awesome stakes and things of that sort. And there's not that many Ferraris, there's not many steaks. So now we have a, now we have conflict over, over over resources um, as the baseline. She, um, but there's also uh, another reason to reject the concept of scarcity outside of kind of this more fundamental kind of conceptual point. That's an inbuilt concept. Um, <clears throat> rooted in an invalid conception from metaphysics and epistemology, and that is, um, is that it takes as, uh, it, it starts from the wrong baseline. Um, and again, um, Rand's response to pe- the to free market economists would be, check your premises, right? So you say there's, there's scarcity, there's, there, there's conflicts over these goods. And her immediate question is, well, where would the goods, where did these goods come from? you know, how did we get these goods in the first place? Because as as I mentioned earlier in our, in our, in our call, um, you know, you don't go out into the woods and find just ready made for us homes and clothing and air conditioners and laptop computers and Ferraris and things of that sort. Um, these things have to be produced. They have to be created. And even before that, they had to be thought of as values that we should pursue and create in order to live flourishing lives. And, um, And I mean, the, the best example that I kind of use, I think illustrate this, is that, you know, there was no conflict over the oil that was literally seeping up from the ground in Pennsylvania for hundreds and hundreds of years. No one was fighting over that oil. Um, that oil only became a valued resource when humans invented um, uh, uh, combustion engines. And they discovered that oil could be used as a lubricant, but more importantly, oil could be converted into gasoline to run those engines. And so it was the, it was the human capacity for innovation, for invention and production, which then converts kind of facts of the world into values. And humans who, who create those values, it's, that's their property right? That's, and they have the right to that property. And if other people are entering into a conflict with them, that's not the baseline to which you start. That's not where then we say, well, now we need property. No, you have property and you have the right to property, the freedom to be, uh, to, uh, to be secure against coercion from other people who may want that. And if they do want it, they need to enter into contractual free relation, uh, contractual exchange with you. They, they can't just take it. Um, so, it's a, it, to start the whole discussion of property or in, even rights more generally from this notion of scarcity is, really represents kind of the exact kind of confused intuition-based um, approach to thinking about political theory that, that Rand really rebelled against as, as causing a lot of the problems we have today, that people kind of start um, uh, you know, with later derivative concepts without realizing where those concepts come from and what they really mean, and that we really need to ask the more fundamental questions. We need to check our premises. Um, that she, You know, and this is why she repeatedly emphasized that, you know, politics in particular is, you know, is, is not a primary. It follows from more fundamental concepts in ethics and in metaphysics and epistemology.
0: Yeah, it strikes me that there's a connection between this point and a lot of the way that we're taught to think about the welfare state about the inequality issue. So one aspect of those issues is morality, but another is just this perspective that our primary is people have desires, how do we maximize their getting what they want? And right and her perspective is we have requirements as human beings and we have to take certain actions to get them and if you take those actions then you have a right to the result. And so it's a, it's a completely different perspective that then um, kind of underlies her moral outlook.
1: Right, exactly, and it really, and it really reflects in, in how you just described that, I think captures perfectly the radical nature of her thought that I think a lot of people miss. You know, when people first read Ayn Rand and they get very excited, and usually politics is the, is the entry point for a lot of people starting to read Ayn Rand and, and admiring her, um, and it certainly is the, is the, is the basis on which a lot of people talk about her today. Um, and I, and to do that, I mean, she certainly had important insights in politics, but, you know, it misses the very radical nature of her, the very methodology of her approach, um, which is what produced those insights that she, that, that makes her so beloved by many people today and, and, and hated by other people for all the right reasons that they hate her.
0: Um, one other major topic I want to touch on that you spend time on in the essay, Uh, is her view of intellectual property and I think having talked about scarcity uh, uh, leads right into the fact that um, by many people who claim to support free markets, there's a growing I think opposition to intellectual property rights often based on this idea of well since property rights are rooted in scarcity and here's a place where there's no scarcity, um, we should do away with intellectual property rights. What was her view? Of intellectual property rights and how they related to property rights more broadly.
1: Right, yes. I mean, Ayn Rand um, um, yeah, is very unique today among um, people, among thinkers who defend the free market in her strident defense and belief in the importance and propriety of intellectual property. Um, and it's one of the it's one of the kind of I think the most important points of contrast that um between her and many contemporary libertarians and um and advocates for the free market who do so from more of an economic framework. And it comes out of their their view comes out of what you just referred to as you know they say if you see scarcity as the baseline for why we have property rights, then that's going to inexorably Lead to the conclusion that intellectual property is not a valid property right because the one thing that is not scarce by uh, by their by the de- by the terms of that definition economics it's non-rivalrous and non-exhaustive is a new invention or a new or a new creation of a book because these things can be copied um, you know and can copy can be copied without exhausting the initial copy and different people can use the copies at different times without being in conflict with each other. And um, and Rand had a very different view um, of, of intellectual property, which followed from her actual view of property. So she, so she doesn't even view intellectual property as kind of a unique or unusual or derivative type of property. She, she actually said in, at, at one point in her essay on patents and copyrights, it's is this short little two and a half page essay that's that's uh, been reprinted in the um, in capitals and ideal that you know that patents represent kind of the core, heart and core of of, of property rights. Um, and the reason why she said that is because she came to recognize intellectual property as a key essential type of property in, in this respect because she saw, this, she saw all property as I described earlier as ultimately flowing from the productive activities that, uh, that um, are baked in the, in the, in the rational mind. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, humans do not come into the world like other animals, and we know automatically what berries to eat or not to eat, or how to make steaks, or how to you know grow you know how to grow corn and how to raise cattle properly, how to build homes. We have to we not, we not only have to think about these values and pursue them, and you know in most of human history we didn't have these values. Um, and, or these values were not ready, ready available as they are today. So you know these really were you know things that had to be thought about for, uh, and very hard in how to how acquire them uh, for for thousands of years. But we also have to even come up with the methods for how to do so. As I mentioned earlier, you know the methods of husbandry of of, of farming, the methods inventing the machines like the plow and the tractor and things of that sort. And so she saw the root of property as fundamentally being intellectual, not just intellectual property in the sense of patents and copyrights, but all property as being fundamentally intellectual, that all of it arose ultimately from man's rational faculty and his need to exercise that faculty and then engaging in the virtue of productivity, which is one of the seven primary virtues in her ethical theory, in producing the values necessary for us to live and to have flourishing lives. And thus she induces from her conception of human nature and what that means for property to recognize also the intellectual property, which is often either viewed as the special hard case of property, or it's viewed as illegitimate, uh, monopoly and not even a property at all, um, as actually representing a key type of, uh, uh, exemplar property. Um, it's actually said, you know, intellectual property, um, secures the base of all property rights, um, the, the products of man's mind. Um, and, and I don't think, for instance, it was an accident, and it certainly wasn't an accident, given this view that Iran had, that all of her heroes are creators and inventors. You know, Howard Rourke, the architect, uh, John Galt, the inventor, um, Richard Haley, the composer. <laughs> These are people who are exercising their rational minds to come up with new creative works and new innovative technologies, and to, because that is what exemplifies ultimately what it means to be human.
0: So I'm going to give you a choice of questions here. Uh, Either what do you think is the biggest misconception or misunderstanding about Rand's political theory? Or if you don't have anything interesting to say on that, is there anything that you learned in working on this chapter?
1: Um, You know... Those are two great. Those are both equal two equally great questions. So, I'm I'm I, I, I very much feel torn between which which one um, which one should I should I answer?
0: You have total permission uh, to do both if you
1: want. <laughs> yes the uh, um, the I think uh, one of the um. One of the I'll start with the second the second question. One of the, the things that really kind of um, uh, was brought home again to me in, in, in writing this chapter with Fred Miller, and it, was, and it really was a, a, a joy and an honor to co-author this chapter with Fred Miller, who um, is just a, such a, a, an important, profound uh, uh, political philosopher and, and historian of philosophy in his own right, um, is the kind of the, the, the radical nature of Rand's philosophy again, in both kind of method and substance. And, you know, at every point um in which you are um, uh, at every point in which we were describing Rand's um thought. Uh and it was and it was hard because we were describing kind of derivative points, so we kept having to say, well this presupposes a more fundamental point in her ethics, right? Or this presupposes a more fundamental point in her um view of human nature. Um <clears throat> That you know, just it really drove home that when people misunderstand her or or, and criticize her, it's very oftentimes because they they don't actually fully appreciate and and or understand themselves kind of the, the the radical nature by which she she uh uh you know thought about these issues and the you know the methods of thinking and the way in which she she drew from more fundamental concepts, follow on you know, observations, induced further observations, and therefore then for, you know, reform and formulated additional concepts based upon the more fundamental principles with additional observations, coming up with those additional concepts and for, follow on principles. And so you know, this really was um, brought home um, for me in, in the portion of the chapter where we talked about her discussion of uh, you know, that there's no conflicts of in men's interests. Where, you know you know she says you know between rational men and a free society there's no conflicts of in men's interests and this is you know a really serious important point and it's and it's hard to understand if you don't fully understand um, Rand's, you know full theory of what it means for humans to be rational what it means to live in a free society and all and, and how those and how those principles then are applied ultimately in the context of a free society that secures individual rights um, and I think that's ultimately, you know, so one of the kind of the, the kind of the general points of, you know, the misunderstandings of, of, of Rand is that a lot of people do, you know, come to Rand through her politics. Um, and, you know, in fact, she is invoked very oftentimes in today's, um, in, in today's kind of more general uh, debates in the media and, 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 and on television and, and, and political contexts, And, um, and a lot of the time it's, it's, it's people, you know, misunderstand ultimately what she was trying to achieve or what she was saying, because they are taking a particular sentence or a particular paragraph or even a particular idea out of its kind of philosophical framework in which she she derived that idea. And so, of course, you know, you can reach what's found to be very absurd conclusions if you take anyone's ideas out of their context. And so, um, you know, I really think it's important to always remember, you know, that Rand very much was followed in kind of a a much older philosophical tradition where philosophers formulated full complete philosophic systems of metaphysics and epistemology and politics Ethics and politics, and that you really have to understand how the later derivative ideas and ethics and politics follow from the more fundamental ideas in order to fully appreciate and understand them. Um, you know, certainly one can potentially disagree, or one could disagree with them, but one should disagree with what Rand really thought, not with what Rand what one thinks one Rand thought when one takes a particular idea out of its context.
0: Yeah, which leads me to my last question. So, I mean, one of the strengths uh, of the companion to Ayn Rand. Is that although it's not a systematic treatment of every one of her ideas, it does present uh, the overall picture of her entire uh, thought. And so, like even within your piece, there's references, you know, throughout the book where people can get a deeper explanation of you know what it, what Rand means by intrinsic uh, mm-hmm. or or of her view of human nature. Um, can you say a little bit from your perspective of w- why you think this book is important?
1: Oh, um, so as an academic, I think this book is extremely important because it it does present in a in a in a single um, monograph um, Rams. Ideas in context, um, because there have been prior works that have presented Rand's ideas, um, such as Dr. Lampekoff's "You Know Objectivism: The Philosophy of Ayn Rand," which is an incredible work and a monumental achievement um, on its own terms. Um, but this this work does something slightly different, which is that it doesn't just kind of systematically present Rand's ideas; it it, it presents those ideas in the context of other philosophers. Both, you know in the, in the past and present philosophical ideas and, and movements that she is associated with or contrasted against and so it for for academics and students who are truly trying to understand you know through you know Heinrich's Rand's terms from her epistemology you know through differentiation and then integration you know differentiating something against something else and then being able best to integrate it into what something is you know, our chapter for instance, you know, pre- presents some of those contrasts that are very important. For instance, the contrast of uh, Rand with natural rights philosophers with whom she is often associated with and explaining why, you know, yes, she shared some ideas, which is why she's associated with them, she shared some ideas with them, and, and in a certain sense, they're, you know, they're, they're fellow travelers um, in political theory, but they also have some fundamental disagreements, um, and, you know, and those disagreements are significant and important because they have implications for the, the ideas in politics. Um, you know, the contrast with, uh, with libertarianism and, um, and why she, uh, rejected libertarianism. And so it, it, I think it's a very important work, um, because it will finally, um, you know, for a lot of academics and, and, and students who are coming to Rand and are studying her in college and, and in graduate school, it will finally help them start to understand a little bit better, you know, how she fits in, the Western canon and what were actually her original contributions and what areas she, she was similar to um, other philosophers and important thinkers.
0: My guest today has been Adam Mossa.
1: Well, thank you, John. This was really great. I appreciate it. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.